with me to our Old Testament reading today, Ezekiel 36, followed by a brief reading in Acts chapter 8, where we will find our message this morning. Ezekiel chapter 36, the reading there is 22 through 28, and then we continue our reading in the book of Acts. We'll be in a short passage in Acts chapter 8 today, a passage I deliberately skipped over when we were last here two weeks ago. It's a rather interesting little passage that has uh, many wonderful treasures for us to mine. Let us pray. Our God and Father, we pray to you, O Lord, for no one else has the words of eternal life. And no one else is so graciously, graciously and kindly disposed to us but you, O Lord. Your kindness excels that of men. Your mercies excel that of mothers. Lord, there is no one who has looked upon us with such tenderness and love, with such might and mercy, but you alone. And so, Father, we come to you through Jesus Christ, and in his name we pray for the ministry of your Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to be upon and with us in the hearing of your word and the preaching of your word. Father, grant us help, help in the preaching, help in the hearing, or we are helpless, Lord. By the merits of your Son, by your love in the covenant, for your great glory, help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Ezekiel 36, 22 through 28. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, who, when through you, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. Please turn to Acts chapter 8. In Acts chapter 8, Philip, another commissioned deacon of the church, finds himself, like Stephen, a commissioned deacon of the church, 
preaching the gospel. And Philip goes out beyond the borders of Jerusalem, out beyond Judea into Samaria, a land of what they called half-breeds and unclean men of religious corruption. And Philip sees a harvest there being reaped by the Lord of the harvest, the risen Christ, under the tool, the farm instrument of preaching the gospel and the good news. Well, in our short verses, 14 through 17, we come to the interlude that we gave little attention to last time. Let us hear it again. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. God's word. The first disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ, two of whom are named in our Acts reading, the first disciples of our Lord needed to be discipled. Even though they were all Jewish men with a significant knowledge of Scripture, they all needed to be schooled by Christ himself. More specifically, they all needed to be schooled in one thing far more than any other thing. Do you know what that was? They needed to be schooled in the salvation of sinners, which Christ had come to purchase and to pour out upon the world. They needed to be schooled in the gospel. Our Lord Jesus Christ purchased salvation for sinners by his atoning death on the cross. His blood bought forgiveness, the forgiveness of all our trespasses. Christ now pours out this same salvation he purchased. He pours it out through his resurrection, his ascension, and by giving his Holy Spirit. The first disciples desperately needed to be schooled in the mission of God through the ministry of Christ. It wasn't natural to their thinking. If they remained unschooled, they would naturally think God's mission was a ministry of condemnation. And beloved, if you remain unschooled, if you remain outside the discipleship of Christian faith, you too will think that the ministry, the mission of God is a ministry of condemnation. That's what the disciples would have thought if their sin-darkened mind was left alone. If unschooled, they would soon rewrite John 3.16 to say something like this. God was so disgusted with the world that he kept his only son to himself so that everyone failing to keep the law of Moses would perish and never have eternal life. And we might think that such a rewrite would be ridiculous. We might think the disciples would never turn the ministry of salvation into a ministry of condemnation. But they most certainly would have. They most certainly would have. And if they would have, you certainly will. If you are not discipled, not schooled in the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
You see, in Luke chapter 9, we learn that they most certainly would have. We are told that one day, two disciples asked Jesus if they could call fire down from heaven to consume an entire village of the Samaritans, the very people who are the subject of our reading in Acts chapter 8. We learn about this fire-breathing lust in Luke 9. These two disciples wanted the ministry of condemnation. As Jews, they had already hated the Samaritans long before that day because the Samaritans were a mixed race. They were half Jew, half Gentile. And the Samaritans failed to follow the law of Moses. They held to many major doctrinal errors. Their chief error is that they worshiped God on Mount Gerizim instead of in Jerusalem. Therefore, Jews avoided Samaritans like the plague. But on this one particular day in Luke 9, the Samaritans of one particular village refused to welcome Jesus because they heard that he was going to Jerusalem. They refused to give him food and his disciples. So the two disciples, they quickly and instinctively thought, fire, fire is what this situation needs. Fire from heaven, let's bring hell down on this village. What did Jesus think of their plan? Luke 9.55 tells us, Jesus turned and faced them and rebuked them. And then they all moved on to another village. But who were the two disciples who wanted to call fire down from heaven? Maybe you know. John and James, the two brothers, the two sons of Zebedee, the fishermen, They were ready for the ministry of condemnation. That's how they would use the power of the Son of God. Aren't you glad the Son of God didn't use his power the way his disciples wanted to use it? But now look what is happening in Acts chapter 8. We learn from our reading that the same fire-loving John of a year or two before, is now being sent from Jerusalem to Samaria, along with the Apostle Peter, verse 14. And this Apostle John, once a fire-loving hothead, he is indeed going to pray for something, someone to come down from heaven on the people of Samaria, verse 15. But it is not going to be a prayer for fire. For the fire of judgment to come down, it's a prayer for the fire of the Holy Spirit to come down upon them. Beloved, John has been transformed. That means there's hope for you, hotheads, if there are any in the room. There's hope for you. John has been transformed. He has been schooled in the school of Christ. John has become what we just saw at the end of Acts 7 that Stephen the deacon had become. Like Stephen, the apostle John is now a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, full of grace and power. Remember Stephen 
as he was being killed by stoning, he prayed to heaven. What did he say? Did he ask for fire to come down on those who were launching heavy rocks upon his head? No, he said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Acts 7, verse, Acts 7, verse 60. Well, now in the same way, John wants those who were enemies of God to be fully blessed with the grace and power of salvation through Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, what message do you want the church to bring to the world? What ministry do you want the church to have for the world? A ministry of condemnation or a ministry of reconciliation? The Apostle Paul tells us what all Christians who are born of the Spirit desire for the world. 2 Corinthians 5. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now, you should only say that. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. You should only say that to people you like, people who are good, people who are obedient to the law. Beloved, those last three sentences are heresy. Those last three sentences come from a natural heart still dead in sin. Let's see our enemies torched, but let's see our friends liberated and saved. Beloved, you were an enemy. You were an enemy of God, armed to the teeth in rebellion against him. And instead of taking your sins and hanging them around your neck as a millstone and casting you into the sea, He put your sins around the neck of his beloved son and had him suffer the ignominy and humiliation of crucifixion in broad daylight with other men's saliva upon his face and a crown of thorns on his brow and the mocking of the church leaders at his feet, all so that your sins would not carry you to hell. What ministry, what message do you want the church to bring to the world. Now, there are two more things I'd like to show and look at with you in this passage. First, we need to look at this very unusual order of Christ's gracious visitation to the Samaritans. Did you notice the order in 14 through 17? They believed the gospel and were baptized, but verse 16 says the Holy Spirit did not fall upon them until many days later, only after Peter and John arrived, and only after those two prayed and laid hands on them. That is a very unusual order. We'll have to sort that out. And second, after that, we'll look at, well, we'll look at how amazing it is. We'll look at the amazing grace. It is amazing that the Spirit has been poured out on the people of Samaria, a people who are known for ethnic impurity, religious corruption, moral confusion, willful stubbornness. 
just like the people of Winnebago County. But the Spirit has been poured out upon them. We'll look at that secondly. So let's first look at the unusual order of the things that took place with the Spirit in Samaria. According to verse 5 of Acts 8, Philip comes to Samaria proclaiming Christ to the Samaritans. This is one of the fruits of the persecution that broke out after Stephen's murder. There's a scattering of the church. Philip is scattered, and he comes with his mouth tuned not by hate, but by grace, announcing and proclaiming Christ in Samaria, among Samaritans. He was, therefore, proclaiming Jesus as Messiah, the long-promised Savior. Philip would have been proclaiming the very same things Peter had proclaimed in his Pentecost sermon in Acts 2. The Christ has been crucified. The Christ was dead. The Christ was buried. And the Christ of God, Jesus, was raised up on the third day. And all of it was God's plan to affect the forgiveness of sins. Peter, or excuse me, Philip would have been proclaiming that. Philip, we could say, even would have said something just like Peter by using these words. Repent and be baptized, every one of you Samaritans, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's what Peter said to the congregation in Jerusalem. Philip would have said the same thing in Samaria. And many in Samaria did exactly that. They believed, they repented, they were baptized. You see that right in verse 12 of Acts chapter 8. Men and women, they heard the word. They confessed with their mouth, Jesus is Lord, and received the sign of new life, water baptism. And for a while... Baptism was the only sign that they had which was testifying to them, Christ is with you. Christ has healed you. Christ has cleansed you of all your sin by his blood. For a while, baptism was the only sign that they had been given that testified that to them. And, of course, they had the word that accompanied the sign. Our text says, though, that the Samaritans did not yet have the signs and wonders of the Holy Spirit upon them. And we know that that means that the Spirit had not yet fallen upon them in a miraculous signs and wonders way because of what it says in verse 18. After the Spirit does fall upon them, it says that Simon the magician could see that the Spirit had fallen upon them. So we are very much correct in in taking that to mean the Spirit was manifest in the way he had been manifest in Jerusalem. Signs, wonders, miracles, healings. But before that, they just had baptism. There were no speaking in tongues yet, no healing gifts yet, no gifts of prophecy yet. Now, Philip, of course, possessed all of those things. Verse 6 and 7 of Acts 8 says, Philip was performing signs and wonders. 
But that was not given to the Samaritans, even after they believed, even after they were baptized. And their believing was not spurious, was not to be suspect. It was even the believing of the Spirit. The regenerating grace had come to them, but not the manifestation of the charismatic gifts of the kingdom. Now, this means that our Lord Jesus Christ in heaven, ruling and reigning, was withholding from the Samaritans the endowment of visible manifestations of the Spirit. But he had given that endowment to the church in Jerusalem. He had given it to the church in Jerusalem to confirm his authority to them as Lord. He had given that endowment of visible manifestations of the Spirit to the church in Jerusalem to show that he was the one doing something new in the fulfillment of the covenant, bringing the new covenant to effect by his blood and body. But he withheld it from the Samaritans. He withheld it for several days or weeks. You see, Peter and John did not take a moped down to Samaria. They used foot power, not horsepower. Now, why would the Lord withhold this? Well, not to create a new sacrament in the church. Some have concluded that's why he withheld it, to give the church reason for the sacrament of confirmation. This would be a very oblique, obscure way for Christ in heaven to set a sacrament in the church. The Roman church has made a sacrament out of the laying on of hands at the time of a young person's confirmation, where they then receive the spirit as the bishop touches them with the chrism. That is not why the Lord withholds these manifestations here. The temporary withholding of the spirit in Samaria was all about the risen Christ, establishing church unity. One faith, one Lord, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Look again at verse 14. It says, Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. The Lord Jesus from his heavenly throne, left something undone in Samaria during this transitional age. He left something undone in Samaria for a while, and he left it undone, according to verse 14 and following, so it could be completed by commissioners from Jerusalem. Once the apostolic delegation from Jerusalem arrives and prays and lays hands on the Samaritans. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Once that happens, then the Spirit falls upon the Samaritans with signs and wonders. And this whole procedure really does two things. It binds the new Samaritan church to the apostles. Because in Samaria, the Lord Jesus isn't raising a second church. It is the one church of Jesus Christ. 
And so he brings the apostles from Jerusalem into that territory and binds that Samaritan congregation to the apostles he has commissioned and called. But it does a second thing. It binds the whole Samaritan body to the one body that is also in Jerusalem. One act of withholding. Do you see what the Lord has done? One act of withholding has accomplished more unity and fellowship than ever would have gotten done in lengthy debates about how much have you given here, how much have you yielded here. One act of kingly withholding, sending of the apostles, makes sure that there's not suddenly two churches, a Samaritan church and a Jewish church. Remember, the Samaritans were regarded as half-breeds, Suddenly we have one new man, as Paul calls it in Ephesians 2, one new body in Jesus Christ under the same head, or if you like, built on the same cornerstone and the foundation, the apostles and the prophets. How might the risen Christ affect unity in the church today? Well, boy, there's so much we could say. We should just understand, though, that much Much has been accomplished in the church of Jesus Christ since these events of Acts chapter 8. We now, since these events, we now have a completed canon of Scripture. We now have an apostolic foundation that has reached its full shape, covering not just Jerusalem, but Judea and Samaria and all of the earth. Unity in the church let us understand, no longer requires the physical presence of the apostles. Unity now requires the apostolic kerygma. Kerygma, yes, Greek word of the day. Proclamation, the very thing Philip brought to Samaria, the very thing that says at the end of our passage that Peter and John brought to other villages of Samaria on their way back to Jerusalem. The apostolic kerygma is recorded and inscripturated in your Bible. And at the heart of that apostolic kerygma is the gospel of sinner salvation. That all sinners of all ethnicities, of all corruptions, of all weaknesses, of all beginnings, of all messes, of every race, all sinners can be brought and made full citizens of the kingdom through faith in Jesus Christ. If we, if we do not agree on that, we do not have church unity with any other church. But wherever we find a body of Christ that confesses that true gospel, we have the core, the burning center of all true Christian unity, and much can be built around it. Now, I said there was one other thing to see in our passage. I want to look with you at how amazing it is that the Spirit has been poured out on the people of Samaria. We are, unfortunately, in some ways, so far removed from how amazing this is that it might just kind of lightly blow over our head like a gentle breeze. But if we were living either as Samaritans or Jews during the events of Acts 8, we would be tempted to be thoroughly scandalized and shocked 
and wouldn't stop talking about this for weeks. And just when we started to get quiet about it, the next amazing thing would happen in a man's house named Cornelius, which is Acts chapter 10, where the Spirit is poured out on the Gentiles. Beloved, the Samaritans hated the Jews. The Jews hated the Samaritans. In John 4, where the woman at the well event takes place, John has this little historic inscription put in parentheses in your English Bible. It says the Jews had nothing to do with the Samaritans. John wanted them torched not too long before. Well, let's be amazed, because here we have a people who are known for ethnic impurity, religious corruption, moral confusion, willful stubbornness, and suddenly this unclean people (coughs) have received the promised Holy Spirit, not in a half measure, not in a three-quarters measure, but in the same measure as the Jews of Jerusalem who regarded themselves as none of those things. And these Samaritans have received the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, their own Pentecost in a way, not a true Pentecost. I'm just using that to make a point. They have received their own Pentecost in a way in Samaria, and they did not have to go through any preparatory classes. They did not have to get morally cleaned up by 25%. They did not have to go and at least attend five worship services at synagogues inside Jerusalem first. They received the kingdom of God through the spirit of God. What does it mean? Well, here's what it means. It means that the Samaritans have advanced in one single step all the way into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And what is that one single step? It is faith. Faith alone has brought them from polluted, immoral, confused, corrupt. Faith in Christ alone has advanced them suddenly to be fully accepted citizens of Christ and his kingdom. Philip, remember, came preaching Christ, and the Samaritans took possession of the whole Christ by the instrument of faith. Verse 12, they believed Philip. Verse 14, they received the word of God. Here is the wonder. By faith alone, Samaritans became fully blessed citizens of Christ's kingdom. There were no classes to get morally cleaned up, no religious cleaning up, no ceremonial cleaning up, None of that was required for them to come to Christ. What was required is that they come to Christ. And then he will clean them. Beloved, this is the way of salvation, according to the Christian gospel. You don't first get yourself clean and then come to Christ. You come to Christ filthy dirty. In fact, you're filthier than you know. You come to Christ with the only thing you can bring to a Savior. You come with your sin, and he cleanses you 
and gives you his spirit and welcomes you fully into his kingdom. Listen, they did not come to Christ because they were clean enough to come to Christ. They came to Christ because they heard that in having Christ, the Son of God, they would suddenly have everything. Everything would be right that they could never make right by just believing upon Christ as Savior, as Messiah. Do you believe this gospel? Everything is right between you and God because your faith in Christ. If you say, well, I'm going to make these five things right and then I'll come to Christ, you will never come to Christ because you will never be able to make those things right. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said about this, and we'll hear it again a little later in Acts. He says in Acts 13, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Do you see what faith accomplishes? Faith has taken the Samaritans, and instead of taking them into a class of moral finishing school, they are brought into the righteousness of Christ, fully received, and they surpass everyone, even Jews in Jerusalem. They surpass even Pharisees in Jerusalem. They surpass even great rabbis in Jerusalem. These Samaritans, by faith alone, immediately surpass everyone who is still trying to get God to accept them by the works of the law. Faith brings them right in, and all is finished. That's amazing. So the great benefit to us of watching this advancement of the gospel unfold from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, and it's going to go to the ends of the earth. Remember Acts 1.8? The great advantage to us of watching this advancement of gospel unfold is that we see more clearly how shocking, how wonderful, how powerful faith in Jesus Christ is. As the Samaritans come to faith, In Christ, we witness a mixed-race, religiously corrupt people come to possess everything God has ever promised in salvation. They possess everything. Nothing has been left out. They have title to it all. They come to possess it not because they were first made into better Jews, but because they can simply come to Christ by faith. The Samaritans did not need to become better at law-keeping to receive the Holy Spirit. They did not need to become better in their worship in Jerusalem to receive the Holy Spirit. They just needed to come to Christ by faith. By faith, the entire blessing of the kingdom is received. The full rule and reign of Christ is received, which means sins are forgiven. The works of the devil are destroyed. The image of God is restored and stamped anew on the soul of man and the inner man. And the new creation is received. The title to heaven is put in the hand and will be kept by God's own power. All of this is attained by faith alone. 
we know, because we've read our Bibles, that even though Peter saw this happen, he needed to still be discipled that faith was enough. Because Peter, by the time Paul's ministry begins, Peter is going to revert to the ceremonial law, and he's going to stop eating with Gentiles. And Paul's going to have to come and rebuke him to his face. And you can read all about it in Galatians 1 and 2. Beloved, here's the challenge for us. Do you believe that faith is enough? That in believing on Jesus Christ, the worst sinner, the most polluted worshiper, by believing on Christ, the worst of us, can have all of him and his kingdom. And then he will begin the cleaning. There is no other Christian gospel than this. There is not a beta gospel. This is the gospel. We can only come into the kingdom for eternity by faith alone in Jesus Christ. Let us remember Paul's words to the Galatians. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Here's something that I hope will help you and scandalize you in the best way. You do not have to be a good Presbyterian before you come to Christ. You do not have to be a good Reformed Protestant before you come to Christ. You do not have to be a mature Christian before you come to Christ. You do not have to be an exemplary Christian before you can come and rest in Christ. Beloved, none of those are the gospel of salvation. Better to be a filthy Samaritan who hears the gospel and hears it as the most amazing, gracious, good news. Better to be that than to be somebody orderly, clean, always doing the right thing without faith in the Savior as his Savior. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for coming to us through the charisma of the apostles, through the preaching and proclaiming of Christ. Thank you, Father, for the early days when that sweet gospel landed upon our ears. Thank you for the early days when our first love was strong and beating with power in our heart and grace was the ocean we swam in. Forgive us, Father, if we have started to drift away from such grace and walked on dry land in our good works 
in our proud ways. Forgive us if we have slipped into the lie that we are we enter by grace, but we stay in by works. Oh Lord, teach us again by the passage before us that you give your Holy Spirit and fully welcome the worst of sinners by faith alone. The faith that reaches out and takes Christ as Savior has taken everything, for Christ is everything. The Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the kingdom, the wisdom, the righteousness, the life, the truth, the way. Lord, give us greater confidence that it is only by faith that we have everything. But, oh, wonders of wonders, we have everything by faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.